Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. The podcast is on vacation this week, so instead we are offering you a uh, a repeat episode of one of our uh, favorite episodes of 2018. This is a discussion I moderated about the future of New York City's Rikers Island Jail Complex. Uh, the discussion was part of a screening of the Bill Moyers-led documentary, Rikers, an American Jail. Uh, there were really great panelists that I had the honor of uh, interacting with, and then there's, uh, throughout the episode, some remarkable audio from the film. Just a couple of other notes before we get started. If uh, you've been enjoying the show, please uh, help us spread the word about it. Um, a great way to do that is by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes um, and telling your friends about the show as well, of course, is a big help. Uh, then I've been putting a lot of work into the uh, pages for each episode on our website, so be sure to check those out. Along with photos and a, a transcript, there's uh, a handy write-up uh, of each episode and then a, a resources and reference section if you want to dig deeper into the issues. So you can find um, the episode pages for everything we've done at courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. Lastly, please consider making a donation to support the work of the place that supports this podcast. At the Center for Court Innovation right now, we're nearing the end of our end-of-year appeal, but uh, there's still time if you're listening to this episode when it's come out. Uh, But donations also work if you're listening to this deeper into the future. I'm uh, one of the people here tasked with trying to keep track of the breadth of the work this place does, and uh, I can tell you it's simply a remarkable amount, uh, and it's taking place across the United States and uh, indeed all over the world. I can't think of an issue that we've talked about on this show where the Center for Court Innovation isn't making a a positive and often truly innovative um, contribution. You listen to these episodes, you clearly care about the issues, so please consider donating to support that work. The secure link for doing that is on our website at courtinnovation.org slash donate. That's courtinnovation.org slash donate. All right, that's enough plugs. Here, then, is our episode, Rikers, an American Jail. I'm thinking about doing something negative. You understand what I'm saying? Not doing something positive, because how could you think about doing something positive when you have nothing positive being locked into a box? Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. As you can hear, we have something a little bit different for you on the podcast today. Recently, I was asked to moderate a discussion of the Bill Moyers-led documentary, Rikers, an American Jail. It's about New York City's notorious Rikers Island Jail facility. And we're presenting highlights from that event on the podcast today. The evening was hosted by Open House New York, part of its Spaces of Justice series. So the discussion was about the film, but also about the future of criminal justice reform and New York City's plan to replace Rikers with a series of smaller, so-called community-based jails. On the panel were Tina Luongo, the attorney in charge of criminal defense practice at the Legal Aid Society, Jill Harris, Policy and Strategy Council with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, 
And then two people who've both experienced incarceration at Rikers and elsewhere and are featured in the film. Barry Campbell, who is now special assistant at the Fortune Society, advocating for people who are currently incarcerated or have been in the past. And Johnny Perez, director of the U.S. Prisons Program for the National Religious Campaign Against Torture. The film consists pretty much entirely of first-hand accounts of incarceration at Rikers. And so some of what you're going to hear on this podcast is definitely not appropriate for younger listeners, and there's some adult language throughout. The evening was mostly watching clips from the film, which you'll hear as well, and then stopping for discussion. But I started the night by asking everyone on the panel a kind of big-picture question. What do they think is at stake in the debate over Rikers? Tina Luongo from the Legal Aid Society speaks first, then you'll hear me introduce each panelist in turn. I think the answer to that hinges on how far we're willing to go to recognize how bad it is at Rikers, but more importantly, how important it is to really look at decarcerating New York City and America, because the conversation centers around reducing a population of people down from, I guess, what it is, 8,000 people right now to 5,000. But the real question is, why? Why would we stop there? And aren't we really looking at a movement that goes far deeper? Johnny, what do you think? I think first we have to, it's sort of like similar to, you know, knocking down a Confederate monument and what that means, right? You knock one down, then suddenly there's a possibility to knock all the other ones down. Closing Rikers Island, of course, is not going to stop mass incarceration overnight. No more than, you know, a monument is going to stop racism overnight. You know, but what it does is, though, you know, it opens the imagination for us to think about what's possible and really try to imagine a society that is more humane, a society that is more just, you know, and rooted on accountability versus punishment. All right. Thank you, Barry. Well, for me, I think it's important that people understand that people of color have always known what's been going on in Rikers Island since day one. It's just now become a public issue. For me, you have to understand that Rikers Island is a systemic problem, but it's only the tip of the iceberg when you think about the criminal justice issue. And it's not just people of color that are suffering. LGBTQ communities are suffering. You know, mental health issues, individuals are suffering behind the walls of Rikers Island. So I'm glad that the public is aware now what's going on. But please don't be misled. This is not something that just started. This has been going on for decades now. And I think it's about time that the public and the government do something about it. And Jill? So I think that's right. I think Rikers is the tip of the iceberg, and I think it also is really symbolic of the things that that were just being described. Um, I think there's a consensus now, sort of a left-right consensus, that, um, that we've incarcerated too many people that we need to pull back from the over-incarceration that, you know, has been happening for the last few years. And I think the policies have begun to change in district attorney's offices around the country, certainly in the district attorney's office where I work. You know, Tina makes a good point about why stop at 5,000, why not sort of reimagine the whole system and, and our use of incarceration and, and sort of really trying to grapple with the question, why do we use it? What are the purposes? You know, what are the functions, the public safety functions that it serves? But I think it's symbolic, really, more than anything, rather than kind of a catalyst or, or sort of something ahead of the reforms. The reforms have been happening for a while, and they're going to continue to happen independently of whatever happens with Rikers. 
All right, so there's obviously a lot to follow up on there. Uh, we also have to get to this remarkable film, so hopefully we're going to pick up on a lot of those issues as we go along and, and, and we discuss the, the film. So the first clip we're going to see is the very opening of the film. It's called Entering, um, and this is really the uh, opens with the experience of, uh, of entering Rikers, of, of taking that long bridge, the, the only bridge that goes across to what really is this stunningly isolated place. Before you hit the bridge, it says, welcome to Rikers Island, and then you go on the bridge, and it's just like, it was the daytime, but it felt dark. When they start to drive across the bridge, I realized how long it was, and I could see Rikers Island as we came over the hill. I'm just going across the bridge, and I just, I'm just looking at it, and I'm just like, the whole time, shaking my head in disbelief. On that bus, is so much stuff going through my mind. But the main thing is just that, hoping that I, that I do make it out. It, it looked grim, like it looked like a, like a monster. Like we were about to go into the belly of, you know, a beast. New York City is, to me, the greatest city on earth. But when you look across that bay onto Rikers Island, that's not living, that's just existing. I felt like I wasn't shit. I felt like I'm here and nobody cares. They got us inside the door, closed the gate behind us, unshackled, took the cuffs off, sent us in a room. They came in, strip searches, which was just like crazy to me because this is my first time ever getting strip searched in a room full of men. And it just was like, I couldn't believe this shit was happening. I went to Rackers Island with a friend of mine and he had already been back and forth to Rackers Island, and this was my first experience. And when I got into the day room of the house where we was at, my friend was with me, luckily, and we were sitting there talking, and all of a sudden I seen him stand up and walk to the corner of the day room, and I, I couldn't understand what was happening. And when I turned around, there were two guys coming to take my sneakers. I assumed that my friend and I, we were going to fight together, but it was just me fighting at the time. They wound up getting one of my sneakers and I black eye and busted lip and everything. And after it was over, I went to him and I said, what happened? And later on that night, he bought me back my other sneaker. And he said to me, he said, I had to know that you could stand up for yourself before I stand up for you. And so that was my induction into the way things ran on Rackers Island. So that was, of course, Barry finishing that excerpt we just saw about the way things uh, run on Rikers Island. And Barry, a question for you, actually. I'm, I'm, it seems like there's this, and the clip really portrays it, that there's a systematic attempt to kind of dehumanize people on their way into this environment. I mean, I imagine that's pretty common to carceral environments, but do you think there's something particularly intense about this sort of dehumanizing of people on their way into Rikers Island? Oh, I think it's intentional. Everything in there from the strip searches to the food to the, to the time when you can go out to the yard to even when you go to the store, you ask permission for everything. And that's, that's dehumanizing to an individual who's been living free most and almost all of his life. And for a first-time offender to go inside Rackers Island, I always tell people, um, we live in this great big world, but this world has two universes in it. One of them is the incarcerated world, and one is the free world. And once you go into the incarcerated world, the rules that apply in the free world don't apply there. 
and the rules that apply in the incarcerated world don't work out here. And for, for, for many, many years, I was trapped between the two worlds because I couldn't understand how they operated. I'm a systems baby, foster home, boys home, jail, and prison. So when I went to Rackers Island, I was going home. I was going home to the chaos that I had known from the age of seven years old. And so when you think about that, that's all I've known, I was happy. Um, Jill, you, you have told me that now the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office has incoming prosecutors. One of the things you do as a, a sort of form of initiation is have them visit Rikers Island so that they can see the conditions there and see what it means when they request sentences that are going to involve Rikers or when people are unable to pay their bail and they end up on Rikers. And so I'm wondering, to what extent then is, I mean, we now think of incarceration increasingly as the least desirable outcome of criminal cases. So what is the role of, of the prosecutor then when, in that understanding? Well, one of the things that, that we're doing in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office as part of an initiative that we have called Justice 2020 is a community justice initiative where we are going to be having very robust conversations with people in communities, not just the sort of usual suspects who are on the precinct councils or the head of the tenants associations or whatever, but trying to get really deep into the communities and the, and the residents and, and, and ask them what justice looks like to them, what safety looks like to them, what would they like to see in their criminal justice system? Because I think that for too long, district attorneys have, I think, for mostly good reasons, assume that they're representing victims, they're representing the community, they want to keep people safe, they feel that obligation very strongly, but their judgment isn't necessarily the best and they're not always appropriately representing what the community actually wants because the community doesn't want mass incarceration. These are people's family members and loved ones. And so I think having those conversations where we're bringing the communities in and actually asking them, what do you think the prosecutor's role should be, will inform our practice going forward. And uh, Tina, as a longtime public defender in this city, could you talk a little bit about the additional challenges that Rikers presents to lawyers trying to represent their clients, uh, to families, trying to visit their loved ones. I mean, I mean the isolation of, of Rikers, and also whether you think these proposed community-based jails, this network of, I think the Lippman Commission asked for five, but it's now going to be four without Staten Island, but whether you think these community-based jails are going to be something of a remedy for that. So that bridge is, I don't know, a mile and a half long. I've come over that bridge many, many times, but I go home, right? Family members, though, in order to get even to that bridge, are traveling sometimes an hour and a half to get to a place where you take then a public bus over that bridge to which you are searched. If you bring your children to see their parent or guardian or loved one, they're sniffed by dogs. If you are uh, someone who's visiting and you happen to be breastfeeding your baby to bring them to see their parent. You're not allowed to do that. You have to leave and end your visit. So now I'm going to tell you about a story of a man who exercised his right to go to trial. It was a two-week trial. It was a significant case. Every day he was woken up at 3 a.m. to get onto a bus, to which he had to be strip-searched before, get on a bus at about 4 or 5 a.m. in reception to get to a bus, to get to court, because his trial was going to start at 9.30, where his jury would be waiting. That person has to now sit at defense counsel table all day long, 
not fall asleep, only eat perhaps a cheese sandwich and a milk on the lunch break. But during that lunch break, I have to meet with him or her to explain. And in this situation, it was a gentleman. Then afternoon, then wait till there's a late bus, get back on, be strip searched again, get back to a housing unit at maybe 10 o'clock, repeat the next day. Monday through Friday, two-week trial. By the time he had to testify in his own defense, he was completely exhausted. That is the reality of when, you're, when you isolate people. Family members can't visit. It takes too long. Trials don't happen. So, yes, community-based, smaller facilities closer to where your life is where your family and lawyer is, is important. But again... And where the courthouse is. Right. But again, how small and what's the experience of those people who are, have to be ha- right now held there? And by the way, the experience of the family members and their children who should be visiting, who frankly should be home visiting. All right. Well, there's, again, so much to follow up on, but we should keep moving to the next clip, and that is a a clip uh, titled Violence, and that is perhaps the defining feature of life or uh, existing uh, at Rikers, as the film makes very clear. So let's roll that clip, please. Immediately, within like 15, 20 minutes of being inside the holding cell for that building, a red light starts spinning. Guys that already been here are like, that's a red dot. Red dot meaning either... Something popped off, meaning somebody got cut, somebody got stabbed, somebody got hurt, somebody committed suicide, or a guard got hurt. Seen a kid come out, bloody, ambulance, in in the stretcher. Immediately, I started to think. I'm not thinking about where I'm going anymore, getting any sleep. I'm thinking about how am I going to get my first weapon. It's gladiator school, for real. If you get there and you don't have a weapon to defend yourself, you have an issue. Violence rules, predator prey. That shit never changes. I'm in a situation where I can't run from. But my whole time in the streets, that's all I've ever been doing is fighting. So I'm looking like I'm in a place where I always trained for but just didn't know it. They taught me how to use a level of violence that I've never, I could never imagine I was capable of doing. There's a saying that it doesn't matter if you have a uniform on right, which is, that says correction officer or one that says inmate, you're still doing time. I heard somebody died. He was Dominican, he didn't speak English, and the person told him, the officer told him to do something, gave him an order, but he just stood there and didn't move. But I don't think it was because he was trying to be you know, rebellious, just the, I don't think he understood what what was said. And they went in the cell, and they was beating him with the sticks, right? It was like three of them. And the sticks would miss him, hit the wall, and it would reverberate through my cell. It was just like, and you hear, I heard his, like, cries. And it was crazy because people just came out of their cells and went on with their day. People were like, yo, who got Kool-Aid? You know, somebody got cigarettes? Like, nobody missed a step. It was just business as usual after that. 
so a difficult clip to watch. Um, it, it's clear, and it's been confirmed again and again, that there is a profound culture of violence at Rikers Island. Johnny, you're someone who's been incarcerated on Rikers. You now advocate on behalf of the incarcerated. Do you believe that we can build these new, smaller, modern, natural light, consistent services for people, jails, these new community-based jails? Can we build those and not take the culture of violence with them? That's a good question, right? So, so part of the argument is, well, if you're just moving the pieces around, aren't you just moving also the problem around? You know, and I would argue, and I would argue that the response is no. Because in addition to doing time on Rikers, I also did 13 years of state in nine different prisons. And what I can tell you from that experience is that I've met correction officers who are one way in one prison and are completely different in a whole nother prison. And a lot of that speaks to the architecture of the prison, trying to create, you know, the culture in Rikers Island is embedded within the walls. You know what's going to happen there before you even get there because you've heard about what happens there. And as a result, you kind of get into this mode where you are likely to respond in the same way that the environment kind of kind of compels you to respond. A community-based jail gives us the opportunity to kind of start all over again, to kind of clean the palate and, and allows us the opportunity to reimagine exactly what a community-based jail would look like. You know, and also it's important to keep in mind, you know, which sometimes you, you look at this and you forget that, you know, a large portion, 85, 88% of the people on Rikers Island are not convicted of any crime. So, and, that, and the reason that's important is because we value, or we have, we hope, we value the idea of living in a country that incarcerates people and holds people, you know, innocent until proven guilty. But the reality of it is that we criminalize people long before we found them officially guilty in a court of law for anything. And part of that is placing you in a place like Rikers Island, where every second is a second by second attack on your soul. And and I'll say this last piece: that the reason a lot of things happen on Rikers Island. You know, uh, abuses happen on Rikers Island because we just don't know what's going on. And every now and then a story makes it out and we're shocked by it. But like to Barry's point earlier, you know, what goes on behind those walls has been happening for years. And then sometimes, let me put it another way, you can't reform a concentration camp. You know, there's no fixing that. You have to close it altogether. You know, um, and I think that's probably the best short answer, the shortest way I can put that. And I just want to say one thing which, which to me is real important. Opening up these community-based jails is one thing. But the systemic culture of Rackers Island is not only in the bricks. It's in the individuals that are running it, the correction officers, the civilian workers, even the medical staff to a certain degree. And I'm not talking about all correction officers. I'm not making an indictment on all of them. But the systemic violence is ingrained within the personnel that are on Rackers Island just as much as it's in the bricks. So I say to all of you, if you open these community-based jails and you got the same people running it, baby girl, you got the same damn problem. I can't put it no other way. Um, on that happy note, let's move to our next clip, which is, I'm afraid, on another pretty grim subject, really one of the most disturbing features of incarceration and one of the defining features of uh, Rikers Island, which is solitary confinement. So let's roll that, please. I was sentenced to 1,580 days in solitary confinement. Almost four years. My longest stretch as an adolescent was 120 days. When you first enter the box, it's like a very dark and gloomy place. I mean, it kind of replicates a, a jail cell. It's just a little bit smaller. Floors is gray. Walls is like a dark, dingy color. It's all gloomy. So it's just, it, 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 
It's, it's meant and designed to keep you down. You hear people out the window screaming all day. You hear people on your tears screaming all day. I walk into the box and it's like, people, it's noisy. It's like everybody's screaming and it just sounds like a madhouse. And just, ah. I went into the cell and the cell closes. And then just that sound that the cell, like that sound that the cell makes when it closes is like, it, it's, it's, it's a crazy sound. It sounds like a dog kennel. Like imagine like 20 different breeds of dogs on the same so-called tear in cages and hearing just so many different, you know, sounds of barking. That's what it begins to sound like. You know, it's, 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 it's madness. You sleep until you can't sleep no more. And then you're awake until you can't take it anymore. And you just wound up just, you know, you either count the cockroaches that come under your door, you start counting the cracks in the wall, anything to keep your mind occupied. I used to look at, you know, like paint chips on the wall, and they would come, become figurines. You look long enough and, you know, hard enough, you know, they start moving around there. You know, so now all of a sudden you got your own private movie theater. I really did feel like my mind was breaking down because my body was also breaking down as well because the portions that they feed you in the box is smaller than what they feed you in general population. So you have to make sacrifices when it's child time. Like, you get two pieces of bread, but you're starving at that moment. You want to eat everything, and you know this isn't going to fill you up, but you have to eat a small portion, and you have to put the bread off to the side for later. I'm not necessarily going to say I felt I lost my sanity completely, but I know it was being chipped away little by little. I'm thinking about doing something negative. You understand what I'm saying? Not doing something positive because how could you think about doing something positive when you have nothing positive being locked into a box? You want to hold on to that understanding that this is insane because if you lose it, then you kind of become conformed to it. And once that happens, there is no, you know, redemption or rehabilitation, you know, as, as they like to say. A question for you first, Barry, maybe. What kind of offenses land people in solitary confinement? I mean, I think your average person would think, well, the bar's got to be pretty hard, uh, pretty high for that kind of punishment, that people must be posing a no. grave threat to themselves no. and to others. No, no, no. It depends on the correction officer working your house. It depends on the correction officer that you come in contact with. Um, correction officers are human. Sometimes they wake up on the wrong side of the bed, and you happen to run right into them. And so when you do that, welcome to the box. Yeah, I, I want to add to that. You know, you, you, know you, you would think that it's people who are stabbing COs or something like that. You know, four out of five offenses are there for really minor offenses, nonviolent. You know, and the most absurd case that I heard was a 16-year-old who shot a spitball at a correction officer and got 60 days in solitary for that. Now, 16-year-olds throw spitballs. We get that. We, some adults do too, but our reaction, you know, to, to such a minor offense is so punitive, but it's also symbolic to the society that we live in, right? We've already criminalized mental illness. 40% of the people on Rikers Island are living with some type of mental health concern, right? We've criminalized homelessness. We've criminalized poverty, right? And now we're even criminalizing just being from a whole other country. So we're criminalizing people not because of what they've done, but because of who they are. And in solitary is the best expression of that. The issue about people with mental health issues that are 
incarcerated as a result of a mental health issue because they were put in a cage as opposed to a hospital bed is a real one, and we have to tackle that. Do not conflate that with the issue of solitary confinement, which in many ways the person doesn't have a mental health issue until they are placed there for a 1,000 days, or if you're Khalif Browder for three years as a 16-year-old. And until we sued at Legal Aid Society, here's what used to happen. You'd owe a solitary bid... You'd get out. If you're rearrested a year from now, they put you in because you owe 60 days on your old solitary. We had a sue to end that incredibly draconian, horrible process. So I want to say, like, let yes, it's true that there are people who have mental health issues at Rikers and as a result of them acting out because they need treatment and not prison or cages... They are in solitary, but we own we own the issue of creating people with mental health issues that come home and kill themselves like that young man, and that's the conversation that we need to focus on when we talk about solitary issues about needing more treatment, more um, sustained housing, more more programs, more of a public health response to mental health is on us also, but they're two separate issues. We're going to go to our, our final clip. It's in some ways a little disorienting to go from talking about solitary confinement to the topic of coming home, uh, because that is the topic of this last clip, which is this very important question of reentry. Uh, what happens to people when they're let out of prison? What kind of support are we giving them? Uh, really, I think it's a larger question of what are jails for? Uh, are they there simply to isolate people and to punish them? Or do we see a role for corrections? Do we see a role for uh, rehabilitation? So a lot of issues, a good way to uh, round up our clips. So let's roll the coming home clip, please. You have all the plans in the world, but the main plan is to, to stay free out of prison. And being released out here where there's no one at, there's nobody that's going to help you if you need some help because no one knows you. And you're so nervous being back out of society after being in jail, even if it's just for one night. It's overwhelming. Coming home, it was hard for me to readjust. I didn't like being around people. I didn't want to share anything with anybody, like my thoughts. I didn't want to be around my own family. Like, it was just really, really hard for me to talk to people. I wanted to use violence for everything that was wrong. My brother and my sister will have nothing to do with me. Um, my husband's family will have nothing to do with us, my husband and my daughter included. It's very difficult. My husband and I are currently separated. Unless you've experienced coming home from jail or prison, you'll never know what it's like. I've always said, you know, it's great. Everybody's talking about these 6,000 inmates that are being released. But what are you putting in place for them to come home to? Yeah, that very much seems like the question. Um, I want to, as we're nearing the end, return a little bit. This is the spaces of justice is part of the title of this event. So talking about spaces and talking a bit about this proposal, again, to put community-based jails of a more modern, effective, humane design. Um, Johnny, maybe from from a re-entry perspective, what do you see as the importance of having jails 
in the community, not at the end of this mile-and-a-half-long bridge that didn't even used to be marked on subway maps? What's the importance of having them in the community on the street? You know, when I think about reentry, it's important for y'all to understand that reentry starts should start the minute that you're arrested. We should be preparing for this person to come home. Why? Because 95% of the people who are currently incarcerated are going to come home. About another 700,000 people a year actually release into our communities. Um, and where this, this scarlet letter where, you know, we expect them to come back into a society that has not, that, that will not fully accept them. You know, and being able to have better access to resources in the community, being able to have more access to your family, right, it strengthens family ties. You know, my daughter's sitting in the audience, and not to put you on the spot, you know, but I saw my daughter a total of six times you know, the entire time that I was incarcerated out of, out of those 13 years. And part of that was because the jail, the prison was just too far, you know, and it was very little access. So being able to put the jail in a place where the families have more access, where, you know, either attorneys or mental health providers or any other service providers also have more access to the individual, we increase the likelihood that a person will come back into a society with services in place, continuity of services for those people who have mental health concerns, you know, being able to have jobs or at the very least be in a position where be able to connect with employers before they get released. You know, and it's just and any time that a person has a successful reentry, we all benefit. And then a question for Jill. It seems like there's the beginnings of a more holistic uh, conception of the role of the prosecutor that's taking place. Uh, aided in part, I think, by people such as yourselves, uh, yourself joining prosecutors' offices. Do you see a role for prosecutors in, in the issue of reentry? I mean, so not just prosecuting crimes, sentencing people, but thinking about reentry issues? Is that something that's on the radar screen for the, for the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office? So it is, and, and I've, I'm of two minds about it. So on, on the one hand, yes, we have a reentry program, and because we're a DA's office, we have resources, we have computer labs, we have the ability to refer people to services, and are starting to build more relationships with the prisons themselves so that we can start to be reaching out to people when they're in prison, you know, so that we'll have relationships when they come out. Another one of the recommendations from Justice 2020 is we sort of consider getting more involved in parole determinations rather than just sort of reflexively opposing someone getting out on parole, actually looking at the individual and and possibly recommending that they do get out on parole. The reason I say I'm of two minds, though, is because I'm not sure that a prosecutor's office is the best place for somebody to get resources and to get integrated into a community. And I sort of feel like generally one of the things that would be helpful is to sort of push more services, more alternatives, more... Uh, reentry resources just sort of into communities and away from the criminal justice system. Because I feel like just being in the criminal justice system is itself kind of criminogenic and, you know, causes more crime and less safety. And I just sort of feel like if we could reduce the criminal justice footprint, that would probably be good. Mary, anything to add? Or? I just want to make one point to everybody. Your information that you've gathered here today should be spread to 10 more people. You've got to get the word out that people are being treated less than human. I understand that someone commits a crime and they have to do the time, but let me tell you something. I haven't been to jail in over 15 years or prison, and I'm still paying for the shit that I did. I am still paying for it. When I walk into a place looking for a job and they run my rap sheet, and they automatically what they see in black and white paper becomes the defining moment for me they look at me and they say oh I know you now you don't know me you know nothing about me 
Today I'm a productive member who pays my taxes. I swipe my Metro card to get on the train. I pay for every item that I take out of a store, and I'm not hitting nobody over the head today. That is a public safety issue, and you have to look at it as such. It's not about giving somebody an easy card because they committed a crime. Yes, I did my time, but why the fuck am I still paying for it? Excuse my language. I get a little emotional. You're excused. You're excused. Gregory of Open House New York is going to give you a formal send-off in a moment. For my part, I just want to ask you all to give a big round of applause to all of our panelists. And thank you. So just before I thank the panelists, that was Barry Campbell of the Fortune Society, memorably rounding out the discussion of Rikers, an American jail that I had the honor of moderating recently in New York City. And that event was hosted by Open House New York. Also on the panel were Johnny Perez, director of the U.S. Prisons Program for the National Religious Campaign Against Torture, Jill Harris, Policy and Strategy Counsel with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, and Tina Luongo, the attorney in charge of criminal defense practice at the Legal Aid Society. I have a number of people to thank for this episode. So many I worry I'm going to have to loop our closing theme. Firstly, Gregory Wesner and everyone at Open House New York, then Public Square Media for allowing me to include clips from this remarkable documentary on the podcast. And in particular, my thanks to Colby Kelly for her help in preparing the panel discussion. To see the documentary in full, which I can't recommend highly enough, visit rikersfilm.org. From there, you can also get help setting up your own screening of the film and request a free DVD. And finally, thank you to the technical staff at Manhattan's SVA Theater. They provided me with a recording of the night's event very much in keeping with the high audio standards we try to set here on New Thinking. And you have been listening to another episode of New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. You can find out more about our own work, Rethinking Rikers Island, at our website, courtinnovation.org. And please, if you can, rate and review the podcast on iTunes. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.